I can hardly believe it myself. We're already up to episode six. Episode six, part six of a multi-part, I think it's going to be eight-part, podcast series on a history of Buffalo theater. Hello, everyone. Uh, This is Pete Pomisano. I'm tired, but you know what? I'm having a blast. I am just having a blast doing this Buffalo history theater, Buffalo theater history. You see what I mean? I've gotten dopey. (laughs) Dopier? I've gotten dopier. I'm up to part five. No, part six. Oh, my God. Pour me another martini. That's right. Anyway, uh, yeah, we're we're up to part six. But believe it or not, part six is only 1983. And I've gotten so many great comments from people about the history series so far, especially things like, well, in the last episode, the David Lamb story, a lot of people thought that was fascinating. And and David himself wrote to me, but he said, well, he was so mad at himself because he forgot to thank a lot of important people like his lovely white Marsha. But I think he did. But he's going to get the opportunity because we're going to we're going to release the entire David Lamb interview someplace in the fall. So you can look forward to that. So let's see, where are we now? Uh, 1983? Well, uh, I I don't know how far we're going to get this time, but we started in 1814, and so we're 19... Oh my God, we're more than 150 years into a history of Buffalo theater. That's pretty impressive. I wish you're thinking, why doesn't he just shut up and continue with the podcast? Because I have to tell you who's coming. We've got a lot of inserts this time. Plus, we have a dinner theater discussion between Tony Chase and myself. Uh, Tony Chase and I discuss dinner theater because that's where we are right now. We'll be talking to Jay Desiderio. We'll be talking to John Samazi. There'll be Vincent O'Neill's coming up a little later on and Neil Radis as as well. And then Tony's going to put in his two cents every now and then, just like we've been doing. If you've been paying attention to these last five episodes, same thing here. Okay, stop talking so much, Peter. Let's move right on to a history of Buffalo theater. And there's the heavily symbolic ticking clock of time passing. And there is the music. The not-so-symbolic music. Just some little rock and roll stuff for you. That's the music that signifies we're starting in on our timeline. And whenever you hear that music, it means we're moving on in the timeline, no, lo- no longer listening to just audio clips. Move on! So we start in 1983. John Samazi ends his Melick & Mime Theater Company. So Dinner Theater Production from Mellick and Mime ends. He told me that Elaine Massolino took over for a little while. I'm not sure about the dates of that. He'll tell you about it when we come up on his clips. But they officially cut off in 1983. But one year later, Desiderio's Dinner Theater starts, and we'll get to that in a minute. But first, in 1984, Joe and Bryna Weiss's The Playhouse closed. It had produced 18 plays in what was thought to be Laubi's Old Spain space on Main Street, but was actually the room in between them that is now the bar area between Shea's box office and the Smith Theater. They dropped the final curtain in 1984. Here's Tony Chase with some additional thoughts about Bryna and Joe and the Playhouse. They weren't actually in Laubi's Old Spain because that was it had become Cambria's Old Spain. 
and then eventually the Swiss Chalet. They were in the space that is the bar at, between Shays and the Smith Theater, which later became George and Company. And they actually built a very ingenious theater space with a downstairs dressing room area. Joe and Brenna and originally Irv Weinstein had the goal of being a fully professional theater, and they aspired to very high standards. They did important works from the contemporary repertoire, but they had opened with Death of a Salesman with Irv Weinstein. And I had been there when they did It Would All Be a Delicate Balance, when they did um, Sol Oaken directing Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. It was a very serious theatrical effort, and they were striving for the very highest standards. They saw their competitor as being Studio Arena Theater. That's what they had their eye on. And it was quite a heroic effort. And that, in that space, is a very new and young Buffalonian. I was uh, 22 years old, but there I met Manny Freed, Don Savage, Marilyn Mendelssohn, Betty Lutz, and her husband, Jim DeMunn, who's the father of the actor Jeffrey DeMunn, all working for Joe and Bryna at the Playhouse. In fact, at one opening night, Betty Lutz did a little party. Nothing could be finer than to work for Joe and Bryna at the Playhouse. And a good, a good esprit de corps about it. But, you know, so many risks involved in producing theater. And it just is very, very expensive. And running a for-profit theater when you're competing with not-for-profits during that period of time, and very, very difficult, very difficult. And now, that same year, 1984, Desiderio's Dinner Theater begins with a production of Peter Schaefer's Black Comedy in a William Street Italian restaurant and pizzeria owned by his dad. Great guy, his dad. Never forget him, or his mom for that matter. And I'll never forget the pizzeria either. Right now, it's the eastbound throughway entrance on William Street. That's what it is now. Here are some clips from Jay Desiderio where he talks about how it all started. My father had a few uh, smaller places mm-hmm. uh, before the one on William Street. And then it just kind of uh, progressed into a little bit bigger place, a little bigger place, until we got that quadrant right next to the throughway. And that was big enough for actually wanted to do banquets, you know, and I went to Fredonia and got my theater degree. They piqued my appetite, so I wanted to do it more, and I grew to love it. So, okay, I have a theater degree. What am I going to do with it? You really have to create your own path, make your own way if you want to do theater. So my mother and father, rest their soul, when I went to them, and I said, oh, Dad? Ma, geez, this is a really nice place. I love being here. Yeah. And they said, okay, Jay, yeah, great. Glad. Would you mind? Would you take mind? these 20 tables out? Why? Well, you, you know, I went to school for theater, and I think we can make <laughs> something happen. They looked at each other, and they said, is it important to you, Jay? They knew nothing about theater. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, they had other interests and things, but uh, theater was not one of them. So uh, they came along with the ride, and they were very supportive to me. And I'll tell you, it's just great uh, that I had family support, and that's how I was able to do it for all these years. All these years and still continuing successfully in 2021. Well, Jay was very successful, and uh, he has some memories about his first show and how they grew with the help of his brother, Bobby. The first show was a, a Peter Schaffer show, a black comedy. And talk about getting uh, groomed in, as a new director. We had Jay Brian Hayes, John Biscalia, Claudia Catalano, right. Debbie Pappas. Once I started the dinner theater, it became part of me. And I grew 
with my brother as a restaurateur. Bobby, but of course. I also grew in the theater. So they went hand in hand, and it was a, a love of both, actually. Because yeah. you got to be on your game. When, when people come into the theater, you know, it's not like a regular theater. They come in. You have to get them right in a good mood right when they walk into the door. And that starts with the dinner itself. Mm-hmm. You might as well talk about Bobby a little bit because he's your partner. He's your my chef, right hand man. My man. like a, he does it, He helps with, the, with the, he builds the sets sometimes or paints or whatever. I mean, I don't even know yeah. all the things that he Jay. Does I'll, here. I'll be right there on the stage where we're painting. I got to take this pan of lasagna out. <laughs> got to take this pan of lasagna out. I've seen that happen. I've been on that stage when he would go in and finish the lasagna and come back out with a with a paintbrush. Here's more about how then they moved on to different venues because they outgrew that small place on William Street. I knew we had a good thing with the dinner theater, and at that time, live entertainment was big. There were no casinos at the time, and you can get these wonderful, wonderful bands on the way up or on the way down Mm -hmm. at, at reasonable prices. So we thought if we mixed the dinner theater up with um, almost like a concert venue, we would do that. So now, was that need just a bigger place? So you went in there. Though. You went in there. You got this big place. It was a former super, super duper. duper. Or something. <laughs> uh, yes, it was. <laughs> so it was a former supermarket. It was a gigantic barn of a place with the intention of making it into a sort of a, a concert venue. But was the theater always part of it, or did that it sort of was. come along afterward? Because I had a, a little stigma from my other place. I I, I loved my place, but. The sight lines were not quite there. Jeez, I said, the next time I'm going to have a nice high <laughs> stage so I can seat anyone, anywhere they can see. You know, unfortunately, everybody can't be front and center. Right. So I want a nice, big stage. So that's how that came about. But even that didn't last. And so now they move on to another venue. And for a short time, they're downtown Buffalo in the old stage door, which then became Garvey's, the old stage door bar. I did some a lot of nice theater there. But um, we did not want to renew a lease another seven, eight years because we knew it, it wasn't going to last that long. And just as that time happens, downtown and the Chippewa district was, was getting huge and everything, mm-hmm. and I thought it might be a good idea. Bob and I went downtown and we opened a place. Yeah. We were on the corner of Pearl and Chippewa. We were known as Desenarios Downtown. And for a brief time, it was almost like having a dinner theater. But guess what? I didn't have to produce or direct. (laughs) People would come to our place before they went to Shays, before they went to Studio Arena, before they went to Irish Classical. It was the pre- and post-show theater bar. It was where you went. (laughs) That's correct. That's correct. But the itch to direct and produce more theater was too strong. So there was another move. If I did it again, I wanted to do it the right way. It wasn't quite the spot, although I loved being downtown. It was great, and I was able to direct a few other shows on other premises. So got this. So then we had an opportunity. A place, an old banquet hall, had closed in Lancaster. And Bob and I said, what do you think? Do you want to stay down here? And we both agreed that we wanted to be in Lancaster, which is near Cheektowaga. So we decided to let the downtown establishment go so we can really get back to our roots with dinner theater and fine dining. And then I was able to do a lot of theater there, too, as well. So now we're here on Como Park Boulevard here. Only a mile from 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 where it all began. And it's almost like I came full circle. Full circle, indeed. So I finally asked Jay, well, what exactly is the secret to succeeding at dinner theater? 
And this is what he said. It was a little slow, but I think the key to success from the choice of the play on the other side of the spectrum, the choice of the menu, and putting them together and just try to do the best you can. And I think that's how uh, I was able to build up a decent reputation. Of course, in this business, you're only as good as your next show. But as long as you're committed to doing the show the best it can be, I think audiences realize that. They'll always give you a chance. Because you got to be on your game. When, when people come into the theater, you know, it's not like a regular theater. They come in. You have to get them right in a good mood and right when they walk into the door. And that starts with the dinner itself. Mm-hmm. If we get them off to a bad start, the poor actors have to work twice as hard. But I like to be visible with my patrons, so they talk to me. Yeah. No, hey, I, I, they, we want to do this. We want a comedy. A lot of times they have suggestions. So I do listen to my patrons, and, you know, I like to please them. My patrons are loyal, Pete. You know that. Mm-hmm. I mean, they come time and time again. And how do you stay at such a high level? You know, dinner theater is just not Neil Simon. Mm-hmm. I do all sorts of things. And I think that helped me get away from that, oh, the dinner theater uh, stigma. I bring in some of the best people in the area saying good things about what we do here. Even if they're not crazy about the piece, you can always find good things and everything. And that's how I think I've been doing this for so long. And speaking of dinner theaters, I thought this might be a good time to interject a little information about dinner theaters themselves, because we're going to be coming up on John Samazi soon, who really brought the whole concept to Buffalo. Uh, Previous episodes, you heard me talking about John, and he's coming up soon to talk all about it firsthand. You'll be able to hear from him. But dinner theaters, I, I had to Wikipedia this, to be honest with you, and the earliest dinner theater dates all the way back to the Middle Ages. Uh, the early theaters served dinner in one room and staged a show in the other. The first formal dinner theater in the United States was in the Barksdale Theater, which was founded in 1953 in Richmond, Virginia, by David and Nancy Kilgore. Now, there may have been other dinner theaters around. Certainly in a country this size, there may have been someone else who got the original idea. And I'm going to talk about that with Tony later on, since we're really not sure exactly where it started. In this area alone, of course we had Desiderius, of course we had Melick and Mime, and Melick and Mime performed first at the showboat, they were at the at Mr. Anthony's, the Packet Inn, out at the Roycroft, the Great Gatsby. There was another dinner theater at the Milky Way in Williamsville, uh, the Plaza Suite Dinner Theater at the top of One M and T Plaza, and then there were performing companies like the DJ Players, formed by Don Jones and and some Fredonia graduates, and they performed at the Plaza Suite and elsewhere. So there was also, as I said, Melick and Mime the Peter Piper Players, who were formed by Bernie Green, and and they were a children's theater sort of group. Not really dinner theater, but I'm lumping them in here because they they were a paid little group that went around to various venues to perform for children, as did the Wondermakers later on. The Tabletop Players that Neil Raddus talks about, that was in 1974. They moved on to 1M&T Plaza doing Once Upon a Mattress. So now we're going to hear about... John Samazi's Melican Mime straight from the horse's mouth. How did it all start? Because he's the guy who popularized it in Buffalo back in 1973. So here we are a dozen years later, and they're closing up shop. Let's hear from John about how it all started. 
I went up to St. Louis and I saw a thing called King Henry VIII Dinner Theater, which actually has played in Buffalo, Buffalo area and Toronto area. But it was a, a situation where the characters had no fourth wall. They acted in the middle of the room and the servers were part of the show. Well, I sat there and I watched this thing and it was silly, it was body, and it was frigging brilliant. I, got, I met, can still remember getting the shivers and saying, oh my God, this is something that in terms of entertainment that I've never seen before, the audience went nuts. But in any event, I went back to Buffalo and, and told Chuck, I said, I've just seen this, this piece and uh, I said, I'm sure that I can't get them to do it, but I want to get somebody here in Buffalo to do something like that here on this room upstairs, which was sat 155 people. And uh, he said, well, you know, if you think it's going to work, go for it. Now, he's talking about his brother, I believe, his brother Chuck, who operated the showboat restaurant, which was down at the foot of Hurdle Avenue, down on the Niagara River. It was an actual paddle boat. It was like the old-time things you saw down on the Mississippi River, a riverboat. But John had never produced theater. He had no theater background. So how did it happen? I tried to get somebody else to do it. Now, Don Jones and his uh, Fredonia Mafia uh, were at the top of MT Plaza, tabletop plays, I think they called themselves. So I approached him after the show and I told him who I was. And I said, uh, you know, we've just bought the showboat and I'm looking for somebody to do dinner theater there. Are you interested in producing it? He was so rude to me. Unbelievable. In any event, make a long story short, I was so pissed off. I said, well, you know, I'll do it myself. And that's when I went to St. Louis saw the show there, and came back and told Chuck, I'm going to write my own friggin' show. Nobody told me I couldn't. <laughs> and that part just cracks me up. He got so annoyed with Don Jones that he said, eh, I'll do it myself, because nobody told me I couldn't. So there must have been some huge startup questions. Tell us about them, John. In my view, because I viewed theater as a business, not first and foremost, an artistic endeavor. And so the most important factor was financial. Will it pay? Will there be enough money coming, a revenue coming out of this to pay these people for their work, to pay the royalties? I had royalties to pay because uh, most of the stuff we did was not Samasi Dudzik stuff. It was stuff from Sam French and Tams Winmark and so on and so on. So that's, that's what that was. Will it make money? Will this be a viable business? And you heard him mention Tom Dudzik in there, who went on to become a really successful playwright out of Buffalo. And he's been back several times. You know, you know Tom Dudzik from Over the Tavern and its many sequels. And there are many productions around Buffalo. Here's how his partnership with Tom Dudzik came about. He could do things um, that I couldn't do. And the reason that I, uh, that I got him uh, and we started Samasi Dudzik Productions, I, I couldn't write the goddamn music. I could write the melodies. And so the first show that I wrote, Make Your Moves of Confidence, you know, I had everything there, the characters, the, the plot, the dialogue, and so forth and so on, and the melodies, I couldn't arrange them. So I knew that he probably could because he was one hell of a great piano player. 
So I went down to Fredonium. I said, look, I, I don't have a lot of money. I didn't. I said, but my brother Chuck is going to be funding. I'm going to be working as general manager. Chuck had just bought the boat and we brought it up and cleaned it up. I said, I have a room up there and I want to do dinner theater. I said, I cannot arrange the music. I said, how would you like to join me? You can act in it if you would, because he did that kind of thing. And we could take one hell of a chance and see what happens. And what happened was successful dinner theater in Buffalo that branched out to many other restaurants. So who was the most helpful in getting all of this started? He talks about several of the restaurant owners, specifically the Turgeon brothers, who owned several restaurants in and around Buffalo at that time. These people were maligned, uh, and I kept hearing that you don't want to do business with them because they're terrible, they cheat people. Bullshit. They did not cheat me. They treated me honestly and kindly and, and did everything they could to uh, help my success with their restaurants. But I have nothing but good things to say about the, the Turgeon brothers and the people that worked with them. We, we, for the most part, we were, uh, worked very, very well with them. So I asked John to tell me a little bit about the first, those very first plays that he did, those very first ones that really were sort of made up on the spot by him and, uh, and Tom Dudzik. Well, the audience became part of what was going on. Uh, you know, Making Moves of Confidence was in a body house, and the, the girls were ladies of the night, and they were servers. You Must Pay the Rent was a, a takeoff on an original melodrama that I did at Fredonia. Uh, in fact, the original melodrama that was done in the, uh, in the 1800s that we did there. And the fourth wall was not there, so that a, a brilliant actor, comic actor, like Tom Dudzig, could look out at the audience and smart-ass them. And according to John, the audience ate it up. They loved when they got heckled back by an actor on stage who would break the fourth wall and talk to them. But then John talked about something I had no knowledge of whatsoever. Back in 1978, as you heard in the last episode here, he made an attempt to start an all-black African-American dinner theater. Here's what he has to say about it. I said, what is occurring is not correct. I know that there has to be talent out there that we can use. And even if we have to, uh, you know, mix racially, you know, different uh, kinds of uh, parts as was being done at the time in Broadway and started in Broadway. So I said, I would like to open a black dinner theater and I don't know where we can do it, but some somewhere, if we can find it on the edge of Amherst and downtown somewhere in there would be perfect because hopefully we would draw from both sides. If, if this, if this happens correctly, but I, I didn't know anybody that was black and that was in theater, but Elaine did because uh, Ed was also going to UB and was getting his MFA as well. And she said, John, I know this wonderful person. He directs, he acts, uh, and he would be perfect for you. And I said, great. So I meet him. We have lunch together. And I said, here's what I want to do. I said, we don't have a black theater here and I want to do a black theater. I said, I don't know if there are, if there are anything, I want the entire thing to be black. 
except for me, I can't change my color, uh, but uh, I will fund it and uh, we will train in like in tech, in the technical aspects, we will train black people to do the technical parts that need to be done so that subsequent shows, it will be a completely black endeavor. Oh my God, the talent has started to come in. But when you're trying to do something that is, you think is ethical and correct, and somebody comes and smacks you aside the head and says, you're a son of a bitch, we're even thinking about this. What he really meant was, how dare you get Ed Smith from Chicago and I do this stuff too. In other words, I had not consulted him. Now, I know it's a little ambiguous there. You're not quite sure what John is referring to, but what he was telling me was there was someone else. There was some jealousy. There was some political pressure put on in the black community because he did not go to them first. He went to Ed Smith to start this black dinner theater, and there was somewhat of a, of a boycott that went on between the African-Americans in the, in the community and those who were in his theater group. So the Black Dinner Theater did not last very long. But as a matter of fact, things were going downhill for Melick and Mime in general. And John finally decided that it was time for him to take a back seat because he was losing money. He was losing money because he wanted to pay everyone in his troupe. It was time to step back and get another job. Here's what he says about how Elaine Massolino took over. Loyalty, though. You talk about loyalty, this woman, Elaine Massolino. When I decided that I had to get a job, in tears, I told her, I said, got to stop it. And uh, I said, I, I have a marriage and a child and that I treasure more than, more than my life. And I've got to go make some money. And she said, look, I totally understand. What if I were to continue with the business for a while and do some shows? Would you mind? And just use Melikamine infrastructure. And at that time, we had just all kinds of things like sets and, you know, you know, all that business. I said, that would be fine with me. She said, I'll use your name. I said, you don't have to use my name. No, you don't have to do that. If you do it, you take credit for doing it. On the other hand, please make sure that you have enough income and revenue that we can not have any more debt because I can't stand the debt anymore. She said, I understand that. And she never came to me for money. But she was a, just a loyal, wonderful person. And she stood in back of me. And I could always depend on her when some other people may not have been dependable. And I'll never forget that in my entire life. But eventually, even Elaine had to close up shop. And that was the end of dinner theater for Melick and Mime. I asked John to look back and tell me all about his proudest moments. I'm extraordinarily proud of the people that worked with us and that went on to make Buffalo an absolutely remarkable center for theater. Last time I counted, and this is last year or a couple of years ago, somebody had asked me, I counted 21 theater venues in the city of Buffalo or surroundings. And I went, holy 
so many of the people that started these things or did these things were people that worked for Millikan Mine. And he couldn't be more right because when he showed me the list of people who performed with Melican Mime, they were some of the most familiar names in Buffalo theater right now. And they started with John Samazi's Dinner Theater. But before we end this segment about Dinner Theater, I want to share with you a little discussion that Tony Chase and I had one day about Dinner Theater, what makes it work, what makes it special, how some plays work better than others, and how to really hit the mark and get the laugh. And so how do you explain dinner theater? Well, well, that's somebody, that's a 1970s thing, and that is also an an interesting, lots of things happening in the restaurant business at that period of time. Mm -hmm. And I think also it's the end of the housewife. Mm. Through the 50s, your typical family had a non-working woman at home. And it's interestingly not till the 1970s when we get the dinner theater phenomenon. It's still 1973, 70, 72, 73, 74. A woman, a married woman, cannot even get a credit card in her own name mm. without her husband co-signing. Right. It's a whole different, rather remarkable when you consider that women ran the home front during the 1940s during the war, and they get this whole notion that this is. Women should have learned during the Depression that men were unreliable. They stopped coming home with paychecks, and yet Mama was expected to put a dinner on the table. Well, she continued putting a dinner on the table through the Depression, through the war, through the 50s, through the 60s. By the 70s, she kind of wants her own money. And marriage itself, whatever, but, but restaurants, as Hollywood had, the audience is becoming increasingly female, you know, and going out, not having to cook. And then... The burden, as theater is becoming more expensive, the all-in-one concept is kind of brilliant. Hmm. As the suburbs happen, that is also a contribution to the dinner theater movement. Hmm. Coming downtown is an effort. Dinner theaters were generally in the suburbs, Hmm. weren't they? Yeah. And you could be close to home. You could park. The suburbs has parking. And you didn't have to park twice. You could get there early. You could have your dinner. You could have a drink because you're not getting up. And you could then, at your own table, see a show. It's rather brilliant. Hmm. And it's a combination of of theater people and restaurateurs coming up with this concept. The byproduct is, as with the little theater movement coming into these professional theaters, is the professionalization of acting because these are businesses. You know, we're charging money, we're earning money, we're making a living. They can't be amateur. They have got to be professional. And it's it's a whole different kind of professional because unlike the little theater movement, it is commercial. It is murder at the Howard Johnson's. It is this, it's love, sex, and the IRS, you know? It's Neil Simon, but not done the way Mike Nichols did it. Did it as, you know, (laughs) done it for the laugh goes here. Yeah, Yeah, just, you know, dinner theaters that give Neil Simon a bad reputation because on Broadway he had a good one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of, I spoke to John Samazi, who you may or may not know much about. I've spoken to him, yes. But but he, I mean, he he makes no bones about it. I, I was a businessman. Right, you know, but he also talks about how he got the idea for all of this, seeing a show in St. Louis somewhere, and so I kept, I kept thinking, well, where, where did that come from? And it was some crazy comedy, some you know, you must pay the rent. I can't pay the rent. Right, oh, right, you must right, pay right. one of those. And it was just absolutely run for your wife, silliness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and but I'm thinking, well, so where did the where did the first idea come from? And I'm you know, all of your explanations 
make perfect sense, you know, but I still want to know who sat down one day and said, you know what? We've got, dad's got a barn. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put people here and let them eat, and then we'll let you show over here. Well, theater people have long done that. There were always music halls, beer gardens, and you know, sometimes theaters would use that. Look upon the 18th century when the Licensing Act in England, where, where you they would circumvent the Licensing Act by saying, we're, we're not a theater at all. You're, you're buying chocolate. And with your cup of hot chocolate, you can watch the show for free, but we're not selling the show. I see. That's for free. The business people will think of this, but during that period of time, those elements all coming together. I have a feeling, though you could check on this, that many people thought of it at the same time. It's a good idea. Mm-hmm. But yeah, somebody must have thought of it first. And, <laughs> but interestingly, out of that comes a whole brand of acting. I love talking, for example, to Sue Toomey, who died in the wool dinner theater person. And she came, these people have had dinner, these people have had drinks. You have got to understand, the laugh goes here. Mm-hmm. Bang. That is the way this play works. Yeah. This play is a machine, this play works. You know, you get so frustrated with the laugh of dinner theater craft. You have got to understand, this show has got to land like clockwork every night. And if you don't get that, well, go back to the neighborhood playhouse, because you are not going to be able to survive here. John Bascalia was also of that generation and of that training. And I, I did a show with John. I did Jeffrey with John. If John didn't get a laugh one night that he had gotten the night before... I remember driving back from Rochester, driving up, he would agonize. Why didn't we get that laugh? Mm -hmm. Did Franklin come in too late? Did I roll my eyes at a different moment? How do I get that laugh back? How do we get that laugh better? Just agonize because that is the art form that you're in when you're in dinner theater. You've got to make them laugh or, you know, if it's a thriller, because that's also good at dinner theater. And he was an expert at it. He knew that that if the guy walked in one, one second later... Timing was off. Roll your eyes in the wrong spot. Timing was off. Right, right. And I also remember dinner theater actors who would read the stage directions done from those Samuel French books yes. and really scrutinize those. You know, why had um, Larry, what's his name, who had done Absurd Person Singular, and, and he's coming in, and he, Blyden, Larry Blyden, oh, yes. and, and he, in the stage direction, he's looking for where a prop has been mislaid, and he looks to the left, and he looks to the right, and then he looks up. Bit. <laughs> Dumb bit. But Larry Blyden did it, and in that Samuel French way, they record the stage managers from the original right. production, and so it's recorded. And I can remember this actor in, in Hartford, Connecticut, also out of the dinner theater mold, saying, you know, I tried it the other way, but no, Larry, Larry Blyden knew what he was doing. You've got to look up. <laughs> You've got to look up. Just, yeah. it, it has to be done that way. Right. Or you won't get the laugh, which is the worst thing that could happen. Right, right. And then building the laughs for dinner theater. If you can, with a take get the laugh a second time and a third time. That, right. that Things and, come in threes. Right. And television actors were very good at this, too. The people who came through the live television comedies of the 1950s, the people who came through your show of shows, very closely aligned to that quality. I think that a lot of those dinner theater actors were informed by television comedy. And they knew B. Arthur. Why do a double take when you could do a triple take? And if you can go for four, 
You got to know when to stop one short, right? But, <laughs> always but, leave but, them but, wanting but, more. But, 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 but you could, if you could. If you can, one, two, three, no, 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 stop, no when to stop, no when to stop. But, but John was like that too. I went, I got greedy. I got greedy. I got, I got greedy. greedy. I yeah. got greedy. I've heard him say yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got greedy. That's exactly right. Too. And it's also when you can just do a single take where you're just staring at somebody. And the longer you right. hold it, the Don't longer move. you hold it, the longer you hold it, the laugh, the will laugh build, it'll the build, laugh and build and build and build and build. But if you break it at the wrong moment, well, you've lost it. Right. And that's why there are certain scripts that were considered good dinner theater scripts and other scripts that were not. And that is why, too, that the Neil Simon, that Mike Nichols directing Barefoot in the Park, for example, and he told the actors, and this was Neil Simon's great revelation because he told Elizabeth Ashley and Robert Redford, do not play for a single laugh. Mm-hmm. Do not. And this was confusing for what's her name who played the mother at first. And then when the audiences started reacting to the humanity and the yes. recognizable absurdity of the situation, not for the yucks that he could write with great. And Neil Simon himself said, I never thought I'd say this, but this play is good. <laughs> yes, this play is good. Yeah. Well, in dinner theater, they undo all of that, and they go right back to the old-style Broadway television comedy, The Laugh Goes Here. Yeah. And in that dinner theater setting, that works very, very well. But they are not seeing the same play. But there are other plays written specifically for that genre. That Murder at the Howard Johnson's, one of the great plays, one of the great American plays of all time, <laughs> because it plays so well yeah. in dinner theater. In dinner theater. Yeah. yeah, but that's how that happens. And, you know, we, we remember it really for the byproduct, which was a lot of profession. Anne Gailey comes out of dinner theater. Oh, I know. Yeah, just, you know, <laughs> that, that yeah. people who really understand the craft of performing. But Sue Toomey, she is so funny. She gets so frustrated. These young people who did not, they didn't know from dinner theater. Right. And she's like, would you just learn the damn lines? And say them. <laughs> That's right. Right? And, sh- and say them exactly as they're written because they're going to work. Mm-hmm. You know, as if it was a recipe. You know, which it is. It, it is. is. It's a recipe. It's a recipe. It's a formula. Right. Absolutely. Right. And that's how we do this with three weeks rehearsal, okay? That's how we do this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that... Just listen to what I tell you to do. Right. We're not going to be doing the seagull next week. You know? We, <laughs> we, we, we... Yeah. Fabulous. Fabulous indeed. Love talking to Tony. But now it's time to get back to our timeline because we're already up to, oh my goodness, we haven't gotten very far at all. We're in 1985 where, after leasing it for several years, UB purchases the Center Theater property and they rename it the Pfeiffer Theater after prominent Buffalo lawyer and theater lover Sidney B. Pfeiffer, whose foundation provided a generous donation. Also in 1985, as I mentioned before, Gail Golden founds the Wondermakers to satisfy her twin goals of wanting to work more and wanting to work for children. Her plays utilized fairy tales with a feminist slant. Women took an active part in the plays, but they didn't choose to sit at home and wait for the prince to show up. And now another major turning point in Buffalo theater history. 1985, actors Chris and Vincent O'Neill, who you may have heard of, appear in a touring production of Waiting for Godot, or Gado, if you prefer the Irish pronunciation, and they do it in the basement of the Airways Motel in Cheektowaga. That's right, it started in the basement of the Airways Motel. 
Here's Vincent O'Neill to tell you all about it. Chris had bought a theatre. Well, bought, he had leased a theatre. Well, the Oscar Theatre in the suburbs of Dublin. And um, we started a company there and we ran an acting school out of that for young professionals. I, I started a mime school. I trained a company. We ran the Oscar Mime Company, Oscar School of Acting, the Oscar everything, you know. So we did a lot of work together, all kinds, mostly dubious, but we worked really closely. Yes, but how did you end up in Cheektowaga? Here's more. We, we did this show, Waiting for Godot, in a tiny theatre in Dublin called The Focus, 70 seats. It was a great production. I mean, Peter Sheridan directed it. He did a fabulous job on it. And uh, it, it jammed. Well, there were only 70 seats, so it didn't take much to jam it. But after a while, Chris said, we should do something with this, you know? So Peter had a brother, Jim Sheridan. Back then, he was running the Irish Arts Centre out of New York City. Peter called him and he said, um, could we bring Godot there? And, and Jim says, absolutely, why not? Of course, I'd love to have you. We, we planned to go over and Chris applied for the rights and the professional rights were not available. He applied for the amateur rights. They had also been bought up by the same guy. So that, that was kind of it. So we couldn't do Waiting for Godot in New York City. So we changed gear, decided we'd do uh, Endgame. What happened then was there was some financial problem at the Irish Arts Centre. So Jim said, I can't bring it over. But I have a friend in Rochester, New York, called John Everett. He's a businessman and he's more money than sense. So he might agree to bring you over. We went over and uh, we did it at Nazareth College. That was the first place I ever performed uh, over here. We did Godot and they loved it. We wanted this to continue. And some guy, one of the Townsells who ran the Airways Motel outside the airport, Kevin Townsell maybe, Leo was the dad. And Kevin saw it and he loved it. And he said, why don't you bring it to Buffalo? Because I've got a hotel. So I put you up in the hotel. You'll all have a room of your own. And we dine you and wine you because I've got a restaurant in the basement and I also have a bar. So this was like an Irish man's dream. There was no theatre there. So... What we would do in the evening, we'd clear out the dining room of all the chairs and tables and we'd put down dried leaves and stick up a tree and that's all there is, really. So that's how we ended up in Buffalo. So that was the start of it all. So how did you actually get to move to Buffalo from Dublin instead of just visiting for basement performances? David and Chris got chatting one evening. They knew each other from Trinity College in Dublin and they were having a, a pint afterwards and David said, well, why don't you stay here? I've got a theater. And Chris said, oh, that sounds great. You know? so, so Chris, was, he had some issues in Dublin. He was um, trying to get out of a relationship with this girl in, in Dublin. And he was also running from the tax man. So he decided he was going to stay. <laughs> and so they arranged it so that he could stay illegally. And, uh, and he worked for the, um, they can't get him now, so it's safe to tell the story. Worked for the Cavanoki for years. And I went back to Dublin. And uh, a few summers later, he was playing King Lear in the park. So I came over to see that. And um, he uttered the famous line, <laughs> my kingdom, I will break into three thirds. But anyway, I, I, I kind of liked Buffalo. It was quirky and different and edgy. And the people were friendly. And it had lots of like theater potential. And uh, a few years later, I got this visa out of the blue called a Donnelly visa in a lotto saying in the next six months, if you want to move to the States as a, a permanent resident. So Josephine and I were just married. Laura had, was just born. And we said, well, let's give it a shot. So we put all of my belongings in my mother's attic. We headed off. It was uh, December the 29th, 1989. So after the Chictawaga gig, 
Vincent moves back to Dublin, Chris stays here, does a few shows at the Cavanoke, and then Vincent has his chance to move back to Buffalo, and he does. Saul had called me and, uh, in Dublin and said, we're doing a production of Waiting for Godot, Chris and myself, at the Pfeiffer. And would I be interested in directing it? And I said, it's a job, you know. I'm going to Buffalo, I'll have a job. Only last four weeks, but still you had a job. And then it was Theatre of Youth After Dark did a Scottish play, and I was asked to play Macduff. And that was it. And then I directed something um, stage-struck, I think, some thriller mystery at uh, Kavanoghi. I can never follow the plot. So Anne Gailey would explain to me what was actually happening. <laughs> well, there'll be more from Vincent shortly as the Irish classical theatre actually starts to take shape. But first, we continue with the timeline, because in 1985, another momentous occasion, December 5th, the alleyway officially opens after renovations to the building that was former Greyhound bus station and then a police station uh, with help from David Moore, who was the director of Buffalo Arts Commission under Mayor Jimmy Griffin. They opened with A Christmas Carol, which at this point was in only its third or fourth year but that's what they opened the alleyway in 1985, December 5th. Here's Neil Raddis to talk more about it. Our introduction to the Alleyway Theatre building came in 1982 when we wanted to produce a play called Cops as part of a summer event sponsored by Theatre District Association. The play takes place in a diner, so we approached restaurant owners in the district to see if we could use one of the found spaces, but we had no luck. What is now the alleyway building was then housing Buffalo Police Precinct 3. So considering the title of the play, I went to the police captain and got permission to use the large empty space in the center of the building. It was a great experience. The police loaned us uniforms for our actors and even let us drive one of their police cars with the siren blaring up to a side door for a dramatic entrance at one point in the play. But the other thing that came from that show was the experience of using that wonderful space With its open span and 20-foot-high ceiling, that was the beginning of my campaign to acquire it as our home. But when it came to convincing the city of Buffalo to allow us to rent the alleyway theater space, it took a lot of time, but there weren't really any serious obstacles. The members of the Common Council and David Moore, who was director of the Buffalo Arts Commission at the time, were very helpful and open to my pledge to use the space to develop new theater for the theater district and to maintain a focus on new plays which was and still is the rationale for a nominal fee. We produce challenging non-commercial plays and musicals, and the city offers us the space at low cost so we can afford to do it. And now Neil talks about the condition of the alleyway theater when it was just being used as a police station and the back had been abandoned. When the first lease with the city was finally completed in 1983, we were able to move into the space that is now the main auditorium of Alleyway Theater, we inherited the mess left from the painting crew of the movie The Natural. The city had allowed the film to use the large area as a paint shop, and the crew hadn't put down any drop cloths. The result was that the entire floor of the 2,200-square-foot room was covered wall-to-wall with multicolored splattering of paint so thick that you couldn't see its beautiful terrazzo floor. I connected a garden hose to spray water to soften the paint, and volunteers spent much of that summer on hands and knees scraping away. In fact, despite how many times it's been scrubbed, if you look closely, you can still see tiny remnants of the natural paint 
in little crevices in the terrazzo. So who were the most helpful people in getting the alleyway theater established in this new space? I've had the great fortune to have been married to two wonderful people. It happens that they shared the same first name. For the first 20 years of my theater career, it was Joyce McMahon. And then for these past 30 years, it was Joyce Stilson. My partners in life have also had the greatest impact on my work in theater. Along the way, my other favorite artistic partners include Maxim Mazumdar, who worked regularly at Alleyway until his death in 1987. Throughout my 50 years directing, I have always worked with my talented old friend Tom Owen whenever possible. And my greatest joy has always been to work with choreographer Lynn Curzio Fermato. In my book, Lynn is the best. And I think you'll hear Lynn Curzio Fermato's name mentioned several times throughout the Buffalo Theater history. Tell us more about the legacy of The Alleyway. Besides the focus on developing and presenting new plays at Alleyway, we created the first pay-what-you-can program in town, which has been in place for three decades. As a way to keep the fuel coming for our artistic fire, we, dis- we established the Maxim Zumdar New Play Competition, whereby every year we receive hundreds of new scripts from around North America and beyond. Petition, so there are top-rated new plays on the Alleyway stage every season. I also started the tradition of presenting my version of A Christmas Carol, which uh, just had its 38th season, though in 2020 it was performed as a radio play. The other programming that I'm proud of at Alleyway is Buffalo Quickies, our annual one-act play celebration that's been going on for three decades. Finally, I asked Neil what he was most proud of when he looks back at the legacy of the Alleyway Theater. Until my recent retirement, I would have said all the new work all the new plays I've been responsible for bringing to the stage, giving that opportunity to playwrights. Over the years, it's also been a great source of pride to produce my own plays and musicals. Nothing like having your own baby come to life. But in response to my retirement, I've heard from so many people, even some I don't even remember, telling me how much I influenced their lives. My actors, volunteers, students I taught at UB, people who worked with me throughout my career as a director and teacher. It has left me suddenly proud in a way I hadn't anticipated. Of course, I'm proud of having built Alleyway Theater. I certainly hope that retiring from my position at Alleyway doesn't mean I'm finished with theater. But in any case, it's been a rewarding 50 years. And as I told you before, Neil Raddus is one of the most mentioned people when I talk to others about helpfulness and how the Buffalo Theater community helps each other, Neil Radice's name often is mentioned. Here's Tony Chase with some final comments about Neil Radice. The opposite of David in some respects, in that David lit upon the core group that he trusted. Mm-hmm. Neil had an endless appetite for finding new talent, mm-hmm. and he would give people opportunities all the time, and you know, sometimes positions of great responsibility and substantial roles. He, this extended, too, to his interest in new works, that there was a period of time when the quality of the work, of the new work, was really, really terrific. Neil was also very cautious with money. That's the opposite of them as well, that that Neil hands a financially stable theater over to Chris and Robin. Even without much of an audience, Neil left a very stable institution where countless people got their start. Thank you, Neil Raddus, for all that you have done. 1985, Toy moves into the Franklin Street Theater. 1985 and 86, 
Randy Kramer and Peter Sham, brother of Norm Sham, help Jane Freeman form Upstage New York. It was a non-equity, professional, rotating, repertory musical theater company evolving from the Committee for Youth and the Arts that I mentioned earlier on. They were already in their second decade. They performed summer seasons at a variety of venues, including the Catherine Cornell Theater, Island Park Pavilion in Williamsville for a couple of years, and finally, Park School. Here's Randy Kramer to talk about the founding of Upstage. What happened was Peter Sham and I, uh, Norm Sham's older brother, who's now chair of a theater department out in Utah, the two of us directed for what then was called the Committee for the Youth and Arts. We did a couple of shows out at Art Park. We did Bye Bye Birdie, and I'm pretty sure we did Grease. And then Peter always had the idea of a summer repertory theater, and we sort of talked Jane and Committee for the Youth and Arts, which became Upstage, to support a move, a summer sort of season. And we did three musicals there. For a couple of years, Peter and I were there. And that's how that all started at the Park School. We had seen that space and we thought it was something that could work. We brought in, I think, three actors from New York City. You know, we augmented them with people locally. And then Jane and Tom Miller was, I think, the president of the board at that time of Upstage. And so he was behind it too. And there will, of course, be more from Randy Kramer in the next episode when we start talking about summer fair and then musical fair. 1986. Patrick Fagan becomes the CEO of Shays and ushers in an era of restoration and prosperity. Here's Tony to comment on the Shays expansion. Well, they predate him, of course, that, that uh, of Shays O'Connell and, and the citizens in the basement and all of that. They predate him. Um, what I would give him credit for is the arguably reckless expansion. He got it done. Patrick's a bit of a madman in a good way, you know, and that happened during his administration. And he certainly was the face of Shays for that period of history. And this happened at performing arts centers across the country. And Albert Nacciolino is quite the entrepreneur. And to call it artistic, it's entrepreneurial. The artistry of these booking houses is happening in New York City. Now, though they present Hamilton, that's where that's all happening. I don't know if Lin-Manuel Miranda has ever been to Buffalo. By the way, Shays does serve that function. Under Michael Murphy and under Tony Conti before him, they took their community anchor role very seriously. And they provide 710 Main for the Artie Awards. I only have to pay for the operating costs. They're really great about that kind of thing that, you know, things with students, they're doing things with the, with the college theater programs. They are an asset. Now, yes, they book, and, but they give us the opportunity to see these shows. And they also make the artists from them available to local young, younger artists. Um, that, that's been a very, very valuable function. 1987, Erica Wall returns to open a new version of the cabaret at 255 Franklin Street. 1989, Terrence and Lorena McDonald found the Playhouse of American Classics to revive American plays that were in danger of, quote unquote, being lost. 1989, Richard Hummert, Darlene Pickering Hummert, Claudia Catalano and Gail Golden found Theater for Change 
in a new genre for Buffalo, something called business theater. 1990, Art Voice, founded by Jamie Moses, debuts and sponsors the first Artie's Awards ceremony at Garvey's Restaurant, originally the stage door, later Desiderio's downtown. Here's Tony Chase to talk about Jamie Moses and the Artie Awards. Jamie just saw the potential here. Jamie's a visionary. He's uh, been a very important person to the Buffalo art scene. He is not a perfect person, but his contribution is immense. And Amy Kutzbach, his girlfriend, they went and in, from their apartment put together an issue of a paper, and then they went around with it. And at the time, Joy Testa was the publicist at Shays. So Joy said, well, why would I advertise in this? This is a rock and roll paper. And Jamie wanted that advertising account because Shays had money to spend. And his plan was quite clever. He said it costs a, gil- a gazillion dollars for display advertising in the Buffalo News, which was by then the only newspaper in town. And it's not even reaching the audience that the arts community, the downtown arts community wants to reach. You know, that if you're having a band playing in Buffalo and you have to pay this huge so that your paper can, so that people can see the ad in Gowanda, they're not going to come here. You play at Broadway Joe's on a Saturday night, something smaller, something more inner city, something that speaks to people who are interested in the arts, as opposed to the sort of quasi B publication that arts in Buffalo, there'd been another one. There'd been a few, I forget the names of them. It's been quite a long time. So he went to UB Publications because at the time, the Buffalo News had a monopoly on arts writing. And he said, who is the best theater writer in the region? And (laughs) they told him Anthony Chase. (laughs) So uh, he came and he gave me a copy of the publication and he asked me, and I'm like, who is this guy? And Jamie in those days, Buffalo's version of Mick Jagger, you know? So he asked me, is there anything that you would like to do journalistically that you could do with me that you can't do with the Buffalo News. Well, the Buffalo News had already censored my review of Lenny. Is that not an irony? So I began to write for Art Voice. And apparently Art Voice is still available online for those of you sort of pining away for the good old days. And now here's Tony one last time to talk about the establishment of one of Buffalo's favorites, in the theater community, the Artie Awards. Art Voice had been, even before I stopped writing for the news, we were able to do whatever we wanted. And what we, what we found was, was very important was to create a sense of a theater community. So we did tons, we provided tons of copy in those early days. We did, did that feature called Private Lives, where we would highlight actors individually. This had never been done before. No one had highlighted local actors as if they were stars. And then Javier began his stage fright column, and it's never a gossip column. It was always a theater news column where he would put in bold names the names of the artists, and he would tell what was happening in the American theater, intersperse what was happening in local theater, and giving them equal weight. So you could find yourself, what you were doing, listed side by side with what Vanessa Redgrave was doing, and giving it equal weight. And we decided on the very first week that the city of Buffalo should have theater awards because that would demonstrate to the population, this little theater, this little theater, this little theater, put them all together. It's a large industry and the quality is high. We also knew that for those kinds of things, you know, at the end of the night of the Tony Awards, who remembers who won? 
you just remember who was there. You remember the speeches, you remember the clothes. So it's like right now, as we're speaking during a pandemic and the, the Artie Awards for last year were not given, or the year before were not given, and, and then there were no shows in the following year. And WNED, WBFO, the sponsor has been saying, well, you know, can't we just do it online? And it's like, you're missing the whole the whole concept. I could just announce on radio who won, but at the end of the evening, most people would not have won. Most people there have not even been nominated. Is the getting together. It is the passion for the theater and celebrating that it is the party. We are celebrating our passion for theater together. And that was always the philosophy of what Art Voice did. Art Voice wanted to be the glue for the arts community and for many years did manage that. It went from every other week to weekly and it inform people of what was going on in the arts and not just for rock and roll and celebrated and give it respect, give it quality. So that's where I think we're going to end it here for episode six in 1990. And we will pick up again with episode seven with Randy Kramer and the start of musical fair when it was summer fair. So make sure, if you haven't subscribed, make sure you do. You don't want to miss one episode of A History of Buffalo Theater. What are you telling me? What? 50? There can't be. Is this our 50th episode? 50 podcasts? Wow. I don't know why, but that just strikes me as unbelievable. I mean, that's that's great. I, I appreciate all of you listening, and I appreciate the opportunity that I've had to do this for 50 podcasts. So thanks for listening, all of you. And thank you all for listening to A History of Buffalo Theater. It's been my pleasure to bring it to you. We are up to 1990, and... That means we have 30 more years of expansion left to go. And we haven't even hit the modern age of diversity yet. We're still in the modern age of expansion, and expand it does. So, tune in again in a couple of weeks, where we will talk about a history of Buffalo Theater from 1992. Well, who knows how far we're going to get. Subscribe on Podbean. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You don't want to miss our LTPs Off-Road with me, Pete Pomisano. Pomisano.